Mark 9, verses 38 through 41, and this is on page 937. And if you do not have a Bible, we invite you to please take this one as our gift. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. I am excited to open up God's word with you today. My name is Evan Skelton. Uh, For those who are newcomers here, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And last week we heard from another one of our pastor elders who did such an excellent job in preaching in Mark 9. I wanted to, uh, before we get started, uh, can you help me in thanking Larry Babb for doing such an excellent job serving us? Larry, I am so grateful for you. Uh, you and uh, Kathy have just been so unfailingly generous with our family and our church. Um, I think in many ways, uh, God has made use of you, both of you, to, uh, as well as, um, as John and Deb. Um, John is one of our other elders here. He's made use of your families. Uh, for the health that we are experiencing here as a church, the restoration God is obviously doing. I think in many ways he's worked through you, and I think you would say in spite of you uh, along the way. And so very, very grateful for you both. And I love sharing the burden of shepherding with you. It is a privilege to be able to care for you, a church that we love so desperately. And so um, I want to uh, invite you, though, to keep your Bibles open. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, and Mark's, uh, John Mark, who wrote this book, uh, did so for a variety of different purposes, Um, and one of those purposes is to define who Jesus is, and not only what his, uh, who, what his identity is, but what he claimed to accomplish, specifically as he had now, as we know, in this point in Mark's gospel, if you've been here for some weeks, now everything is done under the shadow of the cross. It's all about why did Jesus intentionally set his eyes on the cross, upon the cross, head straight forward to find his ministry in light of it. But also, Mark's gospel would have come to a church, in, uh, likely in Rome, that were following Jesus and were not only eager to learn more about their Savior and Lord, but to follow him in obedience. It's a book about what does it mean to be one of Jesus' own disciples. And uh, we find in practice throughout Mark's gospel what being a disciple looks like, or I think you could say, looking at last week's passage that Larry preached on, and this week's passage, we can say that we find out what discipleship doesn't look like. In fact, I, I think this passage, as well as the one that comes before it, if you were, re, if you were listening in, these passages would be, would be funny if they weren't also so terribly sad. Last week, we looked as uh, the disciples are caught red-handed in a, in a conversation they're trying to keep in private from Jesus. And Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? And uh, they are having a uh, contest, a uh, debate among themselves about which one is the greatest. I mean, can you can imagine the egg on their face as Jesus, or J- Jesus is just, again, is just probably shaking his head at all this. And now, what do we find out? We find out that John has run up to Jesus 
uh, and announced to him in a panic that they found somebody else who has the audacity to cast out demons. And surely demon, Jesus is going to be on their side and to stop this guy, to stop this good work from taking place. He, again, what we see here, you have to imagine the disciples, do you think they cringed to see these stories about themselves? Uh, to read these? I don't think so, actually, because they know what God has been so patient with them. Jesus was so patient with them. In fact, they probably shared these stories as eyewitness testimony of, oh, you, you, you better not leave this part out about myself. And uh, as, so they could highlight Jesus and how wonderful and patient he was and how much he had transformed and changed in them after his death and resurrection. But still, it is remarkably funny if it wasn't so sad. Maybe you can empathize with Jesus in verse 19 where he, sa- he says to them, uh, just how long am I going to have to bear with you? I mean, you can imagine what it would have been like with, for Jesus with his disciples to see them persistently not get him, not get it, and, and to play by the same playbook that the rest of the culture had. But I think there's more going on in these verses than just sheer ego. In fact, I think in many ways this passage surfaces a question that Christians are often pressed on today. Just how exclusive is Christianity? Just how exclusive is Christianity and the claims that Jesus makes? After all, as it's so often said, there are perhaps thousands of religions out there, and Christians have the nerve to say theirs is the right one. It seems not only small-minded, but perhaps a bit snobbish, to many people. Even many religious people I know today are uncomfortable saying that Jesus is the only way to God. And if we're not careful, we can read this passage and see Jesus as the ideal pluralist, standing between his disciples, between the fundamentalists and the rest of the world, calling us all just to get along. After all, doesn't he say the one who is not against us is for us? It seems rather extreme, doesn't it? Is Jesus, again, a pluralist who's standing between those who say that Christianity is the only way and those who think there are many ways to God? I don't think so, actually. I think Jesus proves himself to be the opposite of a pluralist here. Even so, I think this passage has much to say to not just the secular person, but the religious person as well. So which is it? Is Jesus and his gospel exclusive or inclusive? I think in some ways, it's both. But as it's it's enormously important for us to get this right, this question, right? Is the gospel inclusive or exclusive? We're going to slow down on each of those parts. We're going to look actually at our passage in three parts. We're going to look at the surprising exclusivity of Jesus. Number two, the surprising inclusivity of Jesus. And number three, holding on to both. But let's get started. Again, picture these events with me. Jesus, with his disciples, having corrected them, we're not sure how much, uh, how much time has taken place, having corrected them now about their ideas of greatness and how they're fighting for position and power, they're fighting to get to the top of the, pe- the pecking order, even, uh, um, even though they are in closest proximity to Jesus, we see their big-headedness. Now we see again 
another occurrence where this is on full display. And for the first and only time in Mark's gospel, although Peter has proved himself to be a bungling idiot all the time, John now comes front and center. Another one of Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John, the three closest disciples to Jesus. You can almost imagine Jesus, I mean, sorry, John running up to Jesus in a panic. Okay, so teacher, uh, are you sitting down? You better brace yourself. Why? Because he'd run across someone else, someone, as John puts it, who was not following us, casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he seems to expect that Jesus is going to get as angry as he does and intervene. After all, the fact that he has come to Jesus with this seems to imply that despite the fact the disciples had corrected this exorcist and told him to stop, he has no intention of stopping. At first glance, it's easy to roll our eyes at an example like this. At one level, it seems so petty to stop good work that is taking place simply because it's taking place outside of their inner circle, especially considering that this man who is casting out demons is able to do what they themselves were not able to do at the beginning of this chapter. If you've been around for the last few weeks, you remember at the beginning of chapter 9, what gets them in trouble? But the fact that they were supposed to cast out a demon and prove themselves unable. Is it possible that John's anger has more to do with the fact that the disciples couldn't cast out a demon and now they see one who could. And yet, this isn't so unlike us, is it? I mean, am I the only one who has trouble celebrating the successes of others? So often, people look for a way to explain away the accomplishments of others around them especially of those who are outside of their tribe, those on the wrong side of things. People that we didn't even realize we felt in competition with. It might be, sometimes, due to a sense of fear or entitlement or petty envy. But unfortunately, religious people can get very stingy with God's grace, even subtly, rooting against their fellow Christians as if somehow their loss was my gain. As if favor and success were somehow in short supply with God. And if anyone deserves recognition and influence or a win, it's me. We say to ourselves, I mean, this person really, Lord? I mean, they can't be trusted with what you're giving them. I mean, if they were to succeed, who knows what might happen? They might even think they were right. I've seen envy and entitlement rot out the marrow of churches, friendships, marriages, staff relationships. I've seen it drive a wedge between one church and another, sometimes within the same church. I've seen it Make my own heart, if I'm just being honest with you, bitter and reactive, perpetually suspicious of those who disagree with me. You may have found yourself on the other side of this attitude, on the receiving end of entitlement and envy. But I think we contribute to it more than we'd like to admit. You know, this kind of 
exclusionary impulse. We're going to get to it in a second, but I have to tell you, friends, when it is motivated by envy and entitlement, not only is it ugly, it is ungodly, and it slanders the name of Christ. It makes us ugly. And it's one of the reasons that many non-Christians, non-believers, and maybe that includes you here today, it's why many non-Christians are so turned off, turned away by Christianity. After witnessing, over time, bloody struggles for power, preference, and position, among those, Jesus said, would be known for their love for one another. Even today, you might need to go and Seek out those you've resented, been rooting against. You might need to go out to those that you have been allowing your own heart to turn sour towards and ask their forgiveness. The impulse to exclude, when it is motivated by envy and entitlement, is ugly and it is ungodly. And yet, we do have to give the disciples at least some credit I think their impulse to exclude doesn't only come from ungodly motives, although I think that's definitely there if they're anything like us. At least in some sense, I think it comes from a good place as well. Apart from what seems to be at least a great deal of petty envy, I think it comes also from a desire to protect Jesus. They, after all, had just announced that Jesus is the Christ— not a Christ, the Christ, the one that they were waiting for, the only solution to their greatest problems. They had cashed all their chips very publicly in on Jesus and on his authority, and they weren't about to let anyone else start claiming that authority for them. They would protect Jesus to the end, and in excluding this outsider, I think that they thought they were doing Jesus a favor. And before we throw them too far under the bus, I think we need to point out that Jesus can be just as exclusive. In John chapter 14, verse, nine, verse 6, I'm sorry, Jesus said to Thomas, who posed this question, I am a way and a truth. What does he say? He says, the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't get more exclusive than that, do you? You know, we're not all feeling our way up different paths on a mountain, paths that will eventually make their way to God, as common as that illustration is. Not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, there is only one way to God, and it is through faith in him. Even while Jesus will broaden the categories of who is in and who is out for the disciples— he does assume, even in this passage, that there are some who are in, and there are some who are out. There are some who are for him, and there are some who will remain against him. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, it's very interesting. We find Jesus, Jesus say something very similar to these verses, but he reverses it. He takes it in a much different direction, especially when talking to the Pharisees. Some of those who in this context in Matthew are trying to dismiss Jesus, are trying to say that his power couldn't come from God, it had to come from, from something much darker, from dark spiritual forces. 
Jesus, in response to them, says something that sounds very similar, but the effect, the punchiness of it, is very, very different. Listen to this in chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Notice that first phrase, whoever is not with me is against me. Compare that to verse 40 in chapter 9. Who, the one who is not against us is for us. While they sound very similar, don't they seem to say the, say the exact opposite? In Mark's gospel, Jesus seems very inclusive. I mean, sorry, in, yeah, in Mark's gospel here, he seems very inclusive, very welcoming, very understanding. Yet in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is exclusive, divisive, and commanding. It's almost like you get the optimist version in Mark and the pessimist version in Matthew. Well, which one is right? I think, again, it has to be both. And I think it comes to a very slight difference between them, specifically the pronouns. You ready to nerd out with me for a second? Some of you were back in English class with the pronouns here. Okay, so we have to notice this. Can we put the first phrase up there? Can we go back to Matthew? Notice, whoever is not with me is against me. What's the next one? Go to Mark chapter 9. For the one who is not against us is for us. What in the world does that have to do with anything, you're asking? So what, notice when Mark says us, again, who is, whoever is not against us is for us. And Matthew says me, whoever is not with me is against me. According to the point, in Matthew you could say there is no neutrality when it comes to the person of Jesus. Let's go back to Matthew if you want to put that back on the screen. I'm sorry I'm making you go back and forth. In Matthew's gospel, there can be no neutrality when it comes to the person of Jesus. This is what's very clear with the Pharisees. They can't be on middle ground. They have, there is e you are either for or against him. And eventually human beings will be differentiated along that line. That is the primary line that God it will eventually separate the human race over. What have you done with his son? Human beings will rise and fall by the response to Jesus, and the Pharisees are falling and falling hard. This is enormously important to say in a day in which we talk about living our own truth. And when we sneer at those who try to impose, impose their truth on mine. Friend, Jesus will absolutely impose his truth upon you. You may pride yourself for your inclusivity, but Jesus does not share it. He will not allow any one of us to turn him aside or simply follow our preferred version of Jesus. He won't allow us to make Jesus in our own image, to just pick certain quotes that we like to throw on Instagram and leave the others aside. Jesus won't allow us to do that, not forever. Even if I don't prefer the scenery, let me give you an example of this about the exclusivity. If I don't prefer the scenery, I can't expect to get to Denver if I drive east. Even if diesel was cheaper, I better not put that in my engine. No matter how good paint might taste, my child should not eat it. No matter what truth I might prefer, there is only one way to find and be found by God. In that sense, Jesus and his claims are absolutely and incontrovertibly exclusive. And his claims are either soberingly true or blatantly false you either can dismiss him entirely or you can take him as lord he did not intend to leave us a middle ground 
looking at Matthew, we must not differ from him. And yet, even as we must not differ from him, looking at Mark, we can differ when it comes to his disciples, which leads to the surprising inclusivity of Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to John, given all that we've said about his exclusivity, an exclusivity that Christians must protect? I want you to look at verse 39 and 40 once again, and I'm going to read this for us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon will be able soon afterward to speak evil against me. It's meant to be, it's hidden here, but it's meant to be funny what he's saying. Someone can't talk out of both sides of their mouth, he's saying. If they're truly doing this in God's power, God's not going to allow them then to slander me. If it comes by my authority and that person disowns me, slanders me, that same, that same power is not going to work very well for them, will it? Is Jesus' point here. And then verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. It's interesting. It's as if Jesus says, I get it. You're concerned about compromising my authority, watering down my teaching. There will come a time for that. In fact, Christians, after this, will have to fight very, very hard, very, very uh, relentlessly to preserve Jesus' teaching. There will come a time for it. But here, standing in front of you, is one who heals in my name, who confesses my authority. He may have refused you, but he has not refused me. In other words, Jesus begins to widen the circle in ways that make his disciples very, very uncomfortable. Now, there is still a line to that circle. There are still those who are outside that circle, and those are those, there are those who are inside that circle. And there is still a center of that circle whom we are all pointing at, and that is Jesus himself. You are either for Jesus or you are against him. But this circle will keep expanding until it includes all people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Presbyterians included, Baptists, Lutherans, and non-denoms, and fill in the blank. Anyone, absolutely anyone, who has put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, who will confess Jesus' authority as Savior and Lord, can get in on this. It is an extraordinarily inclusive gospel. If you find yourself asking, but what about fill in the blank? You are beginning to grasp the gravity of this. What unites Christians in one global eternal family is not their political opinions or parenting styles or how they dress. It is Christ himself. And even one who has given a cup of cold water to advance his cause can join in on it. Friends, what we find here is something extraordinary. Something that makes Christians for one another, even as they disagree about matters of importance. Something that enables one believer to pray for another. Lord, thank you for the ways that you are working through their life, even if it's not the same in mine. That changes our basic posture towards fellow Christians from cynicism and suspicion to celebration and encouragement. Because whether a Christian thinks that you should baptize your babies or speak in tongues or fight against police brutality or sing just the old stuff or get the vaccine or vote Republican. If they confess Jesus as Lord, they are family. 
Sure, every family will have its crazy uncles and its grumpy aunts and those cousins that you just seem to get along with naturally. But they are family nonetheless. I realize at least someone here, especially if you did not grow up Baptist, is thinking to themselves, yeah, that's all well and good, but I still see Baptist out on, there, on the sign, don't I? Doesn't exactly speak unity to define your difference. Doesn't exactly confirm a gospel that makes, uh, that, that the, the claims that the gospel makes to bring us all together. Doesn't that speak the opposite? It might, if being a Baptist ever becomes more important to us than the gospel itself. And yet, what you may not realize is that being a Baptist, whether or not you consider yourself one, if you do consider yourself one, or you wonder why Baptists would like being Baptist, being a Baptist has a great deal to do with keeping the gospel at the center Now, I don't mean that Baptists are the only ones who want to keep the gospel at the center. Nothing could be further from the truth. But what I mean is that the reason Baptists exist at all is that we realized we needed a way for churches that are very different from one another to still cooperate with one another, to be for one another in meaningful ways. We aren't meant to devote ourselves to our little you could say little k kingdoms, but to the capital K kingdom. We are not meant to devote ourselves to our little kingdoms, but to the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And we can do more together than we can apart. It's one of the reasons, you may not know this, but the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are a part, voted a few years ago to go by a different name as well. Anyone know that name? Great Commission Baptists. Partially, here's why. I see some of you grimacing because you've always grown up Southern Baptist, but I don't know if you know this, the majority of Southern Baptist churches are not in the South. I remember being in uh, Colorado myself and I was asked that question. Wait, this is a Southern Baptist church? We're in the West, right? And so, so Baptists, for a variety of different reasons, decided perhaps the the best marker for us about what holds us in common isn't that we're Southern churches, but that we are great commission churches. We are churches that are bound together by the commission of Christ. And for that reason, then I unapologetically prefer it. We are great commission Baptists. Yes, that means Southern Baptist as well. But it's clearer on our missional identity that we are about a commission that Christ has left us to make disciples in all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. In fact, What unites Baptist churches, after all, is the gospel and a commitment to do as Jesus commanded and proclaim that gospel to all nations. Doing that requires a commitment, then, to see beyond our church, even our particular tribe. This actually goes back, and I don't know, this is, again, we're nerding out this morning, a history lesson for some of us. The reason different denominations exist in the first place. I don't know how many times I'm asked, well, if Christians are all about unity, how come there are thousands of denominations? Fair game. But do you know the reason that denominations exist? Thinking back to the mid-17th century, after the Thirty Years' War, which is a brutal war that was fought in large part on religious grounds, uh, Protestants against Catholics and sometimes Protestants against themselves, a bloody, brutal war among Christians that led Europe literally battered and bleeding, 
a war that only stopped from sheer exhaustion and left many theological battles still unresolved. It was about this same time, as church historian Bruce Shelley points out, that the first clear philosophy of denominations was articulated. And it was articulated by those who uh, were called the Congregationalists, or the Dissenting Brethren, among the Presbyterians. The Congregationalists differed in some very significant way from the Presbyterians. In many ways, you could trace our Baptist heritage, if you're a Baptist, back to the Congregationalists. They faced some very real tensions, and yet they noticed, they noted the risk of splitting Protestantism. And so, in England, they recognized that no human being will, um, let me say that differently, they recognize that humans will invariably have different opinions about the outward form of their churches. It had been proven throughout history. You especially start translating the Bible, which is what happened in the Protestant Reformation, and Christians are going to develop different opinions about it. There are certain things which they must not develop a different opinion. But as they knew, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture does, means that, yes, the Scripture is clear, but it is not equally clear on everything it addresses. And so Christians will invariably come to different conclusions about the outward form of their churches. One thing that caught me by surprise is that many, for instance, this happens with any serious uh, study. Uh, I grew up loving Abraham Lincoln, only to be surprised later in life there were many who disagreed with that and thought Abraham Lincoln was one of the worst presidents we've ever had. You may disagree with that, but regardless, you're saying over significant areas of study, you will see significant differences of opinion. So they found themselves in this, how do we do this in a way that we can maintain differences in which we are biblically convinced about how a church should be structured and to continue in a different form would be in disobedience? How are they going to how are they going to maintain their differences without shedding blood? They needed a way to separate from their Presbyterian brothers, who they considered to be brothers, over matters that had very real practical consequences, while keeping the main thing the main thing. They needed a way to express their Christian unity, even in disagreement. That is where denominations came from. Surprisingly, from an attempt to preserve Christian unity. And even as the Congregationalists split away, they recognized that the true Church of Christ can never be fully represented by a single church structure. If you look at Baptist churches and say, that is the only true Church of God, we've gotten it backwards. They recognize that the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture does not mean, again, that Scripture is equally clear in all that it speaks to. And it is possible to be divided at many points and still be united in Christ. As St. Augustine put it, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. Am I the only one who wishes this was still the understanding today? That we could see often beyond our little K kingdoms to devote ourselves to the big K kingdom. Am I the only one that is convicted by Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians who said to one another, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Seeing all the ways I, we, can resent and reject those who are working in Christ's name simply because they are not following us. As I said before, I don't think denominations necessarily contradict the unity Jesus had called his followers to. 
I could add to that differences of opinion about politics, again, or parenting styles, or music preferences. The Bible leaves a great uh, amount of room for differences of conscience over various issues, issues that very much matter and sometimes mean that we need to worship in a different church. My counsel to those who come, biblically convinced that the scripture wants us to baptize infants, even though I am not biblically convinced of that and will try to convince them of otherwise, is to, okay, brother, if you are convinced of this biblically, then it would be a sin for you to continue to come to a church in which we practice the opposite. Go, let me find many other gospel-preaching churches in town in which you can follow this biblical conviction for Christ's glory and we can remind, remain united in the gospel. Even as some of us may be more inclusive than Jesus is, some of us may be more exclusive than Jesus is. Religious people often fight more over small things than they fight for the big thing when it should be the reverse. Now, because this can sound like I'm pointing the finger, let me point it back at myself. I have to tell you, I am embarrassed to say how many times I have needed God to remind me of this at various points in my life. I think of one time in particular when I first started seminary. You see, uh, as a part of a scholarship I had, I was uh, put in what you might say was forced community with uh, nine other men nine very high-capacity men who had come to seminary with quite the resume of all that they had already accomplished. And I don't mean this in any self-disparaging way, but it seemed like they were doing a lot more than their, with their lives and talents than I had yet. I don't mind saying I was terribly intimidated by them. Nervous for the kind of questions that would come up about how many, how much, how fast, that often come up. Honestly, I've just seen this among men in their conversations. This can happen plenty among women. But so often I've noticed men can size one another up. In fact, everything in school seemed to encourage this kind of competition among us. There was even a preaching award given out every year to the best preacher on campus, complete with a monetary prize, if you can believe it. Add to that, we were of very different convictions. We all shared a love for Jesus, but we were very different in what we understood about baptism, how we understood God's sovereignty to work, the role of men and women in the church, which Bible translation we used, let alone how we thought a church should be led or what a pastor was. And we had those conversations often. Even as I'm still convinced these conversations matter and sharpened my convictions today, I have to tell you, insecurity and controversy are a dangerous mix. And over the next few months, I spent an embarrassing amount of time not only sizing the other men up in my imagination, but tearing them down as well. I resented most of them for their apparent successes, abilities, and opportunities. And I tried to soothe my own insecurity by proving all the ways I was right and the ways that I was sure they were wrong, as if their successes did not matter because they don't understand what I do. Not that anyone else has done this. As you might expect, I wasn't the only one, though, among these nine men. And the only way I know that is because, well, of what the Spirit did next among our friendships. That God, in his mercy, intervened. Somehow, we agreed to go on a camping trip with one another, something I certainly did not want to go on, have 
lone uh, time with these men doing man stuff and competing a bunch. Over a midnight campfire, though, something happened where one of them began to confess of his resentment to the others. And one confession led to another until grown men around that campfire were crying with each other, repenting and encouraging one another, saying all the ways that we saw God at work in an embarrassingly wonderful way. I'm not sure I would want you to see a replay of that night, but I know that that night we all gained what were some of our closest friends, even to this day. We still don't agree on a lot, and we still have those conversations when we get together. The old debates somehow end up getting dusted off. But somehow, by God's power, something more important bound us as brothers together that day. A love for Christ. We came to realize that if the gospel is true, then we shared a common story. And we have a common mission. Which is not to advance our particular tribe or conviction, but Jesus and his gospel. That is what binds us as family together and defines both our identity and our purpose, which makes us wonderfully free to be friends with those who disagree. Let me ask you, can you still have serious conversations about theology and parenting and politics and preferences and still embrace a fellow Christian as sister or brother? Do your friendships reflect it? Or have, as I think some of us all tend to do, created echo chambers of those who either agree with us on everything or simply too scared of you to contradict? Do you find yourself working far too hard to change people's opinions around you about your favorite political issue or conspiracy theory or opinion about the end times? All the while taking the opinions of others about the gospel for granted. Sometimes I fear we see it as more of our win, a win to get our family to vote Republican than for them to be clear on Jesus Christ. Friends, we can identify the wrong wins all the time. Are you comfortable burning bridges in your life over petty matters of envy and entitlement? Or are you willing to work relentlessly on keeping the main thing the main thing? If so, I want to get very practical with us. We've talked about the surprising exclusivity of Jesus and the surprising inclusivity of Jesus. Now I want to talk about holding on to both. I want to give you uh, three things to keep in mind. Three things we must devote ourselves if we are going to be this kind of people who embrace both the surprising exclusivity of Jesus and his surprising inclusivity as well. The first is we need to, very straightforward, keep the gospel the main thing. Easier said than done though, right? To keep the gospel the main thing. But we need to recognize that there are people in this room, if it is a healthy church and God is producing that among us, friends, I love being your pastor and I love watching what God is doing among us. There are people in this room though, in a healthy church, that will disagree with you in significant ways. And some of you are saying, amen. <laughs> the question is, is what are you willing to fight over? 
What hills are you willing to die on? Friends, the more the gospel is at stake, the tighter our grip should be on an issue. We must never compromise on our confession that Jesus and Jesus alone is Savior and Lord, that his word is trustworthy and true, that sin is a pervasive problem and there is only one solution, and that solution was the bloody death and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. If we do... If we compromise on those things, may Jesus himself close our doors. But the further a particular issue is from the gospel, the less it concerns the gospel and the reputation of Christ, and I have to tell you, be very careful before you make that determination. Some of us can do theological gymnastics where we can be convinced that paint color is somehow about Jesus' name and glory. We need to be very careful about how defensive we are of our own particular convictions and finding Bible passages to back it up. But nonetheless, the further a particular issue is actually from the gospel, the more we need to be able to respect one another's consciences, to take care about dividing over non-gospel issues. How many church splits could have been avoided if this was the rule? Having a church, being a part of a church together, that has had splits in its past. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have serious conversations about matters that matter, but are you able to fully and freely embrace those who disagree with you and continue to disagree with you? Number two, we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate gospel wins. Again, so often our spiritual reasons for excluding others are merely a cover for our envy and pride. We can live like God's power and favor are in short supply, and that someone's win will mean a loss for me. Nothing could be further from the truth. All is grace. All is grace undeserved. And ultimately, only Jesus deserves the spotlight. If you want to see like me, like I want to see it, I want to see my self-comparison and insecurity die, don't you? I hate it. I hate seeing it in myself. You want to see it die? Begin to celebrate the successes of others, especially if they're wins for the gospel. Pray good for those you're envious of. Pray good for those you resent. Pray that God may, continue, may glorify himself in and through them. That the church down the road may continue to grow in breadth and depth. In fact, just like the disciples, we may have more to learn from our quote-unquote opponents that may not actually be opponents. We may have more to learn from them than we realize. And one of my favorite passages in Numbers Uh, Moses experiences something very similar to what the disciples have. A young man, like John, runs up to Moses in a panic. I have to wonder if Mark's thinking of all of this. And uh, when he finds out that others are prophesying in the camp, the spirit's broken out and they're prophesying. And this young man says to Moses, my Lord, Moses, stop them. And in verse 29, Moses responds, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets? that the Lord would put his spirit on them. As John the Baptist once put it, 
may Jesus become greater, even if it means I might become less. We, number three, need to cultivate gospel partners. We need to cultivate gospel partners. Not only do we need to make the main thing the main thing, or to celebrate gospel wins, we need to cultivate gospel partners. What do we mean by this? Well, it may sound too obvious to say, but God is doing more than restoring our local church. He is working right now all over the city, all over the country, all over the world. It is both normal and easy for Christians to get tunnel vision over time. Only worried about what God is doing in our individual lives and in our local church or in our tribe. But in a nation where we are facing an unprecedented wave of church declines and closures, I think in many ways COVID has exasperated them. It's revealed what has been a problem that we, could, we have avoided and we have neglected but now can no longer. I wish I could tell you how many conversations I have with pastor after pastor that is facing co- decisions that they didn't ever think that they would have to face in an unprecedented wave of church decline and closures in a world then where there are people who have never heard the name of Christ, let alone confessed faith on him, faith in him. What are we doing to work together? We can do more together than we can apart. It is the thing that unites Baptists, but Presbyterians and Lutherans and fill in the blank as well. We can do more than we can apart. It's why we give financially every month to works like Nepali Gospel Church as they are bringing the gospel to Nepali refugees in a way that we cannot. Or we give to the Baptist Cooperative Program, which is advancing the gospel through local churches both here in the United States and around the world. It's why the elders meet with other pastors throughout the week, welcome them here to pray for them and their ministries, that we might hold fast to the confession together. It's why I have the privilege of serving with the Resound team with the Missouri Baptist Convention, which seeks to offer strategic solutions to churches in decline all around our city. It's why we have invited you to join with other Christians around the city in serving our city through the Good Neighbor Initiative, or the Firm or firm Foundation's tutoring. If you are interested in either of those opportunities, by the way, I want you to point you to the, the Deb and John Christensen who can fill you in more details. But these are seeking to give strategic solutions, uh, again, to, I mean, to, uh, sorry, to cultivate strategic friendships, but also uh, gospel conversations among refugees and families. It's why even now the elders have been praying over even more strategic partnerships we recognize, again, what, who knows what God wants to do in our, in our church's story, but we want to think beyond even what God is doing in our church. How can we raise up pastors and send them? How can we lock arms with other gospel-preaching churches to do much for Jesus' glory and not our own name? Finally, it's the reason that you got a slip of paper on your way into uh, in to service. If you want to take that out, if you got one, you should have with your bulletin. Um... This week, uh, I reached out to 20 or so pastors and church leaders, asking them just a simple question, how can we pray? And I have to tell you, it took them probably five to 10 minutes for the majority of them to text me back right away. And what that tells you is they are desperate for prayer. These leaders, again, we have gospel partners around the city who are desperate 
to have other brothers and sisters join with them, labor with them for the gospel through prayer. And I've included a contact on a sheet that I'm going to make available for you. If you would like the full list, again, I've given you one prayer request. And if you got that prayer request, I think you only printed one copy of each. Is that right? If you got that prayer request, ain't nobody else got it. Take it this week and pray over it. Pray for that person. There is some copies, too, of all these prayer requests out on the, uh, the, the table where you find the water on the, on the next steps wall. If you would like that, it includes contact information. And that contact information is for the specific purpose of encouraging another work of the gospel, another brother or sister in Christ, to reach out to them and say, I am, I, uh, I am laboring beside you. Extend them, spiritually speaking, a cup of cold water, saying, I am for you in prayer. To let them know that their work is not in vain. To not give up the hope. To press on in endurance for Christ's own sake. To demonstrate that we are not just about what's going on here. Again, friends, we need to cultivate gospel partnerships. Increasingly so. Although there were days in which we could fight turf battles, those days are over. Even though I think turf wars were always inappropriate. But friends, let's now, even as we're talking about prayer, go to the Lord himself. Lord, we come to you as those who say all is grace and anything you're doing here among us in our individual lives or in our church or among our tribe is all of grace. And we we praise you for it. Thank you for saving us. We do not deserve to be called your children if we are Christians. And if there are non-Christians here, the non-Christians who are here, I should say, to who are still investigating the claims of Christ, again, Lord, would they see that all is grace? That ultimately what separates us is our allegiance to, is to Jesus. We will be separated on what we've done with him, not finally how we dress or talk. Lord, would we together demonstrate what it means to be people who have serious substantive conversations, especially when the gospel is at risk, but are known for people of of love and of celebration and of generosity because they want Jesus to be made much of and not ourselves. The only hope we have for this is your work among us and to remind us of the gospel which saved us. And so we pray for Jesus' sake, the name that is above every name before whom all knees will bow and tongues will confess that he is Lord. To glory of God the Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.